0: Do you guys, um, do you, you guys remember, I'm sure most of us do, um, tuning in your TV or your radio? Right, this is a bygone thing. I don't know if you realize that. We haven't done this for a good while. But this was a thing, right? You'd, you'd get to the TV antenna and you'd have to like kind of tune it in so the channel would come in clear and maybe get like a little bit of foil on that thing to get a little extra reach and whoever was holding the antenna, the, the, the screen would come in and they'd like, freeze, don't move, you know? You just stay there? So this is a thing that we did culturally. It's kind of, again, some, sometimes you have a radio you might be able to tune in, but that's about it. But the goal is to get a clear picture. And as we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to go through chapter 2 this morning looking for a clear picture. There's, it's kind of a complex text. There's several things going on. We want to hopefully be clear with what's going on there. And the three pictures, the three clear pictures we want to see is a, a picture of the lawless man. The text has a lot to say about the man of lawlessness. A clear picture on that. A clear picture for those who refuse to love the truth. And then a clear picture of the triumph of Christ and his people. In chapter 1, we see that God will vindicate his people. He's going to deliver his people. Uh, And for the Christian, that is our great hope, that Christ will vindicate. He will deliver us. We're still in a broken world we 're still waiting for that we 're still waiting for christ 's return and Paul deals with christ 's return he dealt with it he dealt with it in his first letter he dealt with it when he was with them in person and here in the next letter in chapter two he 's addressing the same issue again that, that Christ will come, and we must know we must have a clear picture of what is going to happen and we 're just going to kind of take this chunk by chunk so beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2. says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to come from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself every and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that When I was still with you, I told you these things. And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the tradition that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. So we see in this passage, beginning by this man of lawlessness, And what is this man of lawlessness? Well, Paul is writing and he's encouraging the Christians, listen, don't be quick or shaken with all these kind of different messages you're hearing. When I was with you, I told you what these things were, and he's getting ready to remind them. And he says something interesting. He says, don't be shaken quickly in mind or alarmed when you get a message either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter. So what Paul's saying, and he reiterates this at the end of the chapter, is what you heard from us. And Paul's not saying me, only he's talking about himself and Timothy and Silas. He's saying the message you heard, believe that message. Even if you hear a different message from another person or even a spirit, don't listen to that. Listen to what we have taught you. So don't freak out. Don't be quick. Just be shaken. Trust the words we have left you with. Now remember last week, we were talking about all the confusion is about when Jesus is coming back. That's all the hubbub, all the talk. When is he coming back? And remember what we said was, it's not really about when, it's about what. It's about the what of Christ's return. We know he's coming back. We know that we don't know when that is, but we trust. And last week, I said, listen, nobody knows. So if people out here telling you it's going to be this year, it's going to be in 10 years, it's going to be in five months, nobody knows. Nobody knows but it could be today, it could very well be today. So we trust, so it's not about the when, it's about the what, and the what is, what does it mean that Christ is coming back? What does it mean for my life, what's it mean for my family, for eternity, for our church, what does it mean that Christ is going to come again? And these are the questions that the church was asking in Thessalonica, what's gonna happen, how's this gonna go down? And so Paul writes them and then talks about this man of lawlessness. And he gets in this passage, it's it's kind of confusing and there's all these different things. And I just want to kind of make it clear. I want to point out seven things we know about the man of lawlessness. We're going to kind of jump through a few different verses, so stick with me. But first thing is, we know that the man of lawlessness comes and he precedes the return of Christ. So he's before Christ's coming. We know that that's verse 3. And also in verse 3, the second thing, he is the son of destruction. He's given the title son of destruction. The other thing we, we see in verse 4 is that he's opposing all gods. Verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship. He takes his seat in the temple of God. Now, there's a lot of things in this text that, as Christians, we're missing some of the context. We weren't there when Paul was talking to the church, so we don't know when he says. Didn't I share this with you? We don't know what he shared, and so we're kind of missing that. We feel that, right? So there's some gaps here for us, and so there's a few areas where we can make some guesses. We can say, this is what I think, but we really have to be honest and say, we just don't know. We just don't know. So we know that he's going to oppose all gods and everything that's worshipped, every object of worship. So when this man of lawlessness comes, he is not going to be someone who gives you the option to worship what you, whatever you want. He is going to demand worship of himself. See, the thing about the world right now is it's kind of free reign. You want to worship Jesus? Worship. You want to worship Muhammad? Whatever you want to worship, YouTube? Whatever you want to do, your money, your job, just worship it. That's fine. The man of lawlessness, he's not going to be that way. He's going to demand worship from everything, every person, And then he's going to take a seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, again, this is a a, a section where we're like, we don't really know. Some people think that that's going to be a literal temple rebuilt in Jerusalem. He's going to go into Jerusalem and sit in that temple. Some people think it's um, meaning that he's going to take a seat in some kind of more metaphorical throne in the world. Kind of have supremacy in the world. We don't know, but he is clearly declaring himself to be God, right? So that's a, he's opposing all other gods. The, the fourth thing we see, and we see this in verses 6 and 7, he's currently being restrained. He's being restrained. And this is another section where we say, we don't know by who. We don't know who's restraining, if it's an angel or if it's angels, it's the Holy Spirit. But he's being restrained at this moment, currently presently right now and there will be a time when he is revealed the the fifth thing we see in verse 9 he's acting as an agent of satan right so this isn't like kind of an offshoot of satan he's not rebelling this is within satan's working for the end times and how he's going to deceive the nations again he's a son of destruction acting as an agent of satan we see this again. He has power. Has all power for false signs and wonders. Now, this is where it, it, this isn't like the the false signs are in themselves false. Like it's just a, a mirage or something. These are actual signs. These are actual. Um, we would we would say like if God's doing these things, they are miracles. But they aren't miracles because they're not from the Lord. But these are false signs from Satan with power, power to deceive and bringing wonders. So Paul's thinking of the church and they're, they're, they're trying to figure out when is Christ coming and, and he's like, listen, when he comes, there's gonna be signs, there's gonna be messages, people are gonna be they like, listen, no, I saw this thing happen, I saw this, this, this crazy thing happen. You're gonna hear that kind of language. Lots of deception, lots of wonder, real things. Then the seventh thing we see is he brings the wicked deception. He deceives those who are perishing in verse 10. Now, it's interesting when you think about deception, people who are being deceived. Nobody knows when they're being deceived, right? How many of you guys are being deceived? You don't know it when you're being deceived. That's the deception. That's the crazy part. You do not know it. You think you got to figure it figured out. You think I know what, uh, you know, I've read all these things. I got to figure Or you just think, yeah, I'm a smart person. I have some common sense. I got some street smarts. I've been around the block. I know." Deception. You don't know when you're being deceived. And this is kind of a it, it kind of it should jolt you a little bit. Are you being deceived? Are you being deceived by the things of the world? Are you being deceived by thinking that you're, you're a follower of Christ because, man, you appreciate Jesus, but, man, he doesn't rule your life. You don't really, you don't care to read the Bible. You don't care to obey his commands. This is why we need the Holy Spirit as believers. We can be deceived. Without something outside of us who telling us the truth, we're up for deception. This is why you, you need the local church. You need brothers and sisters around you to, to remind you what does the word say? What is true? See, that the, the man of lawlessness, he brings wicked deception for those who are perishing, for those who are perishing. And so we have this kind of picture of this man of lawlessness. He's gonna come before Christ comes, He's going to be kind of heralding his own his own thing. He's going to want everything to worship him. He's going to oppose all other gods. He's going to be acting in the power of Satan, performing signs and wonders, false signs and wonders. He's going to be deceiving those who are perishing. It's important that we understand that. That's the man of lawlessness. That's the what. That's what's going to happen. So what about those who are perishing? Let's get a clear picture, an image of those who are perishing. Well, they are deceived, right? We see that in verse 10 again. They're deceived because the second part of verse 10. They refuse to love the truth and be saved. They refuse to love the truth and be saved. So they're deceived. So then what happens to them, the third thing, is God gives them a strong delusion so they believe what is false. So you see, kind of a pattern here, right? They're they're rejecting the truth, and and this isn't just they're. It's not just they're rejecting like the message of Jesus as the Lord and Savior. They're rejecting God. They're rejecting all truth, and therefore rejecting Jesus as well. But they're rejecting the truth. They don't love the truth. They make no room in their heart for truth. They have no desire to be saved. So God gives them a strong delusion. So they believe what is false. It starts as, I mean, I'm not, they're not out there looking to believe what's false and to be deceived, but they are rejecting the truth. They're rejecting the way of salvation. They're rejecting the Lord. And when you do those things, and when you push truth away, the only other option you have is falsehood and lies, untruth. They weren't picking willingly untruth, but by rejecting truth, by having no love for truth, by not desiring truth, that's what they were selecting. So God gave them what they wanted, to be delusioned in the falsehoods. Therefore, the fourth thing we see is that they are condemned. They're condemned because they rejected the truth. And when you reject truth, you have to accept what is false. John Calvin puts it this way, those who were perishing were deserving of it. Nay, more did of their own accord choose death. Those who were perishing were choosing death because they were choosing to reject truth. So often we we want to view this as, well, they didn't choose God, but did they did they really deserve hell? They, they chose it. They chose to be away from God. And so God gives them their desire, which is to be separated from him, and he gives it to them for eternity. C.S. Lewis has his famous quote, and I'll probably mess it up, but essentially it's saying, if, if God were to open up the gates of hell and say, all right, come into heaven, no one would come. They hate God. They hate him. And so were we hating God enemies of God, wanting nothing to do with God until Christ came for us, delivered us. But for those who are perishing, they're condemned. They take pleasure in unrighteousness. This is the last thing we see, this picture of those who are perishing. They take pleasure in unrighteousness, as verse 11 points out. Not only are they rejecting the truth, they're beginning to take pleasure in the things that are against God, the things that oppose him, the things that Christ died for. We say this a lot, but we often want, or the world often wants the kingdom without the king. They want all the good things that God can give them, happiness, satisfaction, meaning, purpose, security, Good things, but they don't want God. They want to practice the unrighteousness without any kind of conviction that the righteous one is going to judge them for that. And in their view of the righteous one, is this just as God who kind of doesn't care about them and is up there just kind of angry at the world. If you read any of the Gospels, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, came to earth. He came to us. How dare anyone level a charge against God that he is unloving or unkind when he had no need, he had no, uh, nothing compelling him. He chose to come to us. We don't deserve that. He didn't do that to kind of, kind of even out the scales. He came to us. Showing love, showing mercy, showing grace, offering salvation. They took pleasure in unrighteousness. They took pleasure in rebelling against God. So they are perishing. They are a perishing people. Those who reject the truth, who have no love for truth and to be saved. So we see the man of lawlessness it is deception. We see those who are perishing, who have rejected Christ and now, are, and now fall under this, this lie and deception of the world and are given over to their desires. The third thing we want to see clearly is the triumph of Jesus Christ. And because of his triumph, his people. Verse 8. This is, this is All this stuff, this is what Jesus, this is how he deals with it. Verse 8, then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. That's it. All these things, Jesus kills him with the breath of his mouth and brings to nothing by Christ's coming. All the work, all the things, all the deception, all the power. I mean, as Christians, if we live to see this day, there will be trembling in our hearts for this being, this man of lawlessness, who comes in and and just kind of has full reign over the earth and sets himself up as God. And when Christ appears, it will be, if the man of lawlessness was as nothing, as nothing, and Christ will kill him with a breath. The breath. That's all he gives him. And Christ has come for us. He's coming for his people bringing justice, bringing mercy, setting all things right, brings to nothing by the appearance of his coming. This is what Christ triumphs for his people. He shows his supremacy. He shows his superiority over all things. So even in the moments when when the man of lawlessness is, is having his way, and even today when the world is in chaos, and we just think, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? And what's going on? And, can, you know, can he do anything? This is not, we do not serve a God whose hands are tied or a God who just, he, he wants to help but he can't or he just wishes he could do more. He shows up and he destroys the man of lawlessness with a breath. That's it, he's gone. This is the God we serve, supreme over all things. This is our God, and we are his people. Read with me verses 13 through 15. Paul is encouraging the brothers. He says, we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, in, to this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So again, Paul's saying the same thing he began the letter with in chapter 1, encouraging, thanking God for his, bro- his brothers and for what the Lord has done in them. We've covered four things I want us to notice here about this picture of God's people. One, they're chosen by God. God has chosen them. They're his people. He has redeemed them. He's gone out for them. They're his. He matures us through sanctification. Right? This growing in holiness by the Spirit and by truth. This is so important that we have a right understanding of, of salvation and Sanctification. We are saved. God saves us. He redeems us, right? He died for our sin on the cross, paying the price for our sin. We then are right with God the Father. We're right with him. There's no more barrier between us. Then Christ defeats death by raising from the dead, giving us eternal life because we are with him. We're saved, we belong to him, we're adopted into the family. We're his, nothing, nothing, nothing can change that. When God has saved you, there is no, nothing bigger than God. Nothing can undo what he has done. Can I get an amen? amen. Uh, then he begins the work of sanctification. This is the maturing This is the slow, hard process. We don't put any effort in our salvation. The Lord saves us. He regenerates us. But he begins with us the work of our sanctification. Us learning to follow him, to die to sin, to die to ourselves, to choose Christ. He begins to make us more like him. Sanctification really means two things. It means separated from the things of the world and separated to God from the things of the world to God. This is what he's doing in us through his spirit and his word, the truth. So I just want to encourage you, brother, sister, if you're struggling, if you feel weary, like, man, I'm just not growing in my faith. I'm still struggling with this thing I've been struggling with for years. I just, what's going on there? I just want to encourage you. Be praying, asking God's spirit that dwells in you as a believer, dwells in you, And be in God's word. God sanctifies his people through his word and his spirit and his church. So be encouraged. Be in the word. We all struggle at times with being in the word consistently. Being in the word, memorizing scripture, praying, reading the scriptures, praying the scriptures. But this is God's method for making his people holy. And God is making his people holy. The third thing that we see for those who are part of God's people say, obtain the glory of Christ. Obtain the glory of Christ. Not that we become or we take his Christ, but become, we become partakers. Now, again, think about this for a moment. This is, this is the creator God made all things, supreme over all things. Killed the man of lawlessness with a breath and he invites his people to be partakers of his glory. We're so often we're chasing the things of the world, a little bit more success, just a little bit more money, a little bit more recognition, uh, lose a little bit more weight, feel a little bit more better about myself. Just a little bit of this, a little bit of that, because we're wanting a little bit of the glory of the world. And here Jesus Christ is inviting us in to be partakers of his glory which is better than anything the world can offer. So we must remember who we are as God's people, partakers of the glory of Christ. The last thing, what it means to be part of God's people, is this encouragement that Paul gives. Stand firm. Stand firm. And hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. This idea of stand firm and hold, hold fast to what was taught, what you were given, in the tradition that we gave you. Hold fast to these things. Remember, he just gets done telling them about this man of lawlessness that's going to set the world on fire. Everyone's going to have to try to worship him. He's going to worship from every single person. He's going to have the power of Satan. bad things going down. What's God's encouragement? Hold fast. Stand firm. Firm, stand firm to the truth. He doesn't say, stand firm to the denominational tradition you're a part of. or Stand firm to, you know, what your parents told you to believe or what, what kind of your political affiliation tells you to believe or the tradition of your nation or your people group. He doesn't say those things. He's speaking to Christians who their identity is Christian. They belong to Christ to that tradition, to that message, hold fast and stand firm. So we as believers, this is, our, this is our mission, this is our work, as God's people, triumphing because Christ has triumphed. Only because of Christ do we triumph with him. Now you, you may be hearing all these things. You may be hearing all this stuff and it's, it's still not clear. The picture's still not clear. And, and maybe this will help clarify some things. But we as Christians, we believe the Bible. We follow Jesus. We genuinely believe that there is good that comes from God and there is evil that comes from Satan. We believe that in our hearts there are evil desires. We believe that mankind has evil desires in their heart. And what I mean by evil, I mean against God. Anything that opposes God is evil. So there's evil in the world. There's evil in the hearts of mankind. And this evil, because of this evil, we're we're naturally pushing against God. We're naturally rebelling against God. And if we stay in our rebellion, if we stay kind of against God, and we might not even think we're being that rebellious, but the, the patterns of our life, the motives of our heart, are against God, then you're against God. If you stay in that place against the Lord, and He will allow that you will be separated from God for eternity. For eternity, eternity, and you will suffer the punishment for your rebellion, and that is eternity in hell. But God did not leave us hopeless. He provided a Savior, Jesus Christ, for us. For those who desire to be saved, for those who want to stop rebelling against God, who are sick and tired of their sin, who feel the weight of their sin, who desire to live and not be a slave to sin, there is salvation. There is hope. We're called to turn from our sins. To acknowledge it, repent, turn from our sin, and follow Jesus. Following him literally means to follow him. He's given us his word. we, We strive to obey it. He's told us how to live. We seek to live that way. And to enjoy and to know the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ. See, God's wrath and God's judgment, these aren't God's These aren't God's prominent attributes. These aren't the attributes he loves to display most. But because he is loving and because he is truth, he will and he must display wrath and judgment. If there is no wrath and judgment, then God is not loving and he's not truthful. Those who go against God will suffer the, for the consequences of rejecting truth. And if God is to display and show love, he must uphold what is true, what is loving. So for those who turn to Jesus there is salvation in love, in mercy, in acceptance, in adoption into his family. If they follow Jesus, they will be saved. But if you reject Jesus, you'll be condemned. I hope that's clear this morning. For those who are followers of Christ, there is great comfort and encouragement in Christ. For we have been saved for God for eternity. And he loves us. And this is the last kind of portion of this text. That's what Paul says. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort, In good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. If you are a follower of Jesus, brother, sister, be greatly encouraged. Be encouraged. The man of lawlessness will come and he will be destroyed and you will spend eternity with God who loves you and who's making you holy. And we're commanded to evangelize, to share that message. Not just... Celebrate it as God's people, and that's it, but to share with those around us the good news of Jesus Christ. This is our hope, or to be encouraged by these things. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are rejecting the only way of being saved, and if you're rejecting the only person your heart truly longs for, and if you're rejecting the relationship with the person you are created. For you you're rejecting life you're rejecting salvation and there's nothing nothing that will satisfy you nothing in this world that will bring you peace only Jesus Christ can do that I pray that you would see your need for Christ that you would turn from rebelling against him and follow after him and enjoy his mercy and his grace day after day let's pray